Hello, 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 and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Mirantis, where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud native landscape, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory. And I'm John Janshik. Always wonderful to have you, John. Uh, Nick will be back in the future, but I think you and I will be chatting a good deal over the next month. I know we're both looking forward to KubeCon in October, uh, doing some recording there. We sure are. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. This week, we'll take a look at some new open source tooling for confidential Kubernetes and distroless container images, a whole heap of security updates and phishing attacks, and a Python vulnerability old enough to be legally employed in the United States. But first off, we have a bit of Mirantis news. Uh, you want to start us off, John? I sure will. Mirantis Kubernetes Engine has been recognized by G2, the world's leading business solutions review website, as a leader in the container orchestration category across its overall and mid-market grid report. The G2 grid reports compare products in specific categories based on satisfaction, based on validated reviews on G2, and market presence scores, which are based on market share, company size, and social impact. Mirandus has ranked higher than some of the most prominent established players, including Red Hat and Amazon Web Services. The G2 report includes quotes from users, but we'll share just one. The main advantage of MKE is that we can deploy it anywhere, like virtual server, cloud, etc. As a project lead, it is my responsibility to make available nodes to use available nodes to users easily, and also manage all nodes' performance, mainly worker nodes. After deploying MKE on our premises, my work becomes very easy. Now all nodes at one place, easy to manage and track, easy to deploy using Launchpad CLI. I've successfully deployed it on our virtual Linux server. Installation link, having clear instructions to install MKE. Now all performance updates are happening in one place. If you'd like to check out the G2 report, uh, you can see the link. Yeah, and you can also learn more about MKE at mirantis.com, of course. Excellent. So uh, sticking with Kubernetes, Edgeless Systems announced the open sourcing of their Kubernetes distribution called Constellation, which they bill as confidential Kubernetes. This security-centric distro is wrapped in a runtime encrypted VM with the idea being that all activity inside the cluster is encrypted against everyone outside, including the cloud provider. Among other things, this provides encryption at runtime and remote attestation or verification using cryptographic certificates. Now, all this encryption comes with a performance cost that some benchmarks estimate could fall between 2 and 8%. So the question for enterprises here is exactly where they want to land on the security performance continuum. Do you have any thoughts on that, John, or, or expectations for the kinds of choices I'm folks are going to make? I'm actually kind of surprised that they're only seeing that much uh, fall off. In, yeah, absolutely. On, it's, on it's, benchmarks. It's, I, I would want to see what the benchmarks are. Mm -hmm. And I think they're going to depend on workload, right? Like uh, you're, you're going to have different Certainly. results for heavy workloads. Uh, Certainly. And um, on things that generate a lot of network traffic. And, you know, there are probably a lot of considerations that impact performance. So it actually, it, it, that's interesting. I mean, it could be end up being difficult to predict what the impacts are until you have a lot of empirical experience running specific workloads in this absolutely. environment. Yeah, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. Uh, you can check out the project on GitHub at edgelesssys slash constellation, and the uh, uh, user account there is edgelesssys, and then the project is constellation. Elsewhere in security-conscious tooling, ChainGuard announced Wolfie, what they're calling a Linux undistro, intended to serve as a slim and secure base for container images. 
So that's spelled W-O-L-F-I. It sounds lupine, but it actually refers to the smallest known species of octopus. I learned something today. Chainguard calls Wolfie an undistro because it doesn't actually include the Linux kernel. It assumes it's running in a container and using the host kernel. It's similar in concept to Google's distro-less base, paring down packages in the base to an absolute minimum. And really, it's more than similar. It seems to be a pretty direct evolution of that project, hmm. while also taking some inspiration from Alpine Linux. Wolfie features include SBOM generation at build time, minimized dependencies in the base, daily builds for the base image to keep components up to date, support for glibc, libc, and muscle. Using Wolfie as a base, ChainGuard says their images for Go, PHP, and Nginx each contain zero CVEs compared to counts in the hundreds for the standard versions of those images. If you're interested in how Wolfie differs from the distroless base, it uses ChainGuard-developed tools called Melange and APKO to build images from APK packages without actually including a package manager like APK or APT in the base and doesn't draw on upstream Debian like distroless does. And if you want to dig in deeper, you can check out Wolfie on GitHub at github.com slash chainguard hyphen dev slash Wolfie hyphen OS. I'm going to look up that octopus reference now, of course. Absolutely. Um, That's the first the first place you go. <laughs> well, I had assumed it was a Van Halen reference, you know, <laughs> I, I suppose it means I'm dating myself again. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I don't think I don't think music um can date us anymore i think we live in such a fragmented musical environment well, where it's a Mozart uh, everyone reference listens. ultimately yeah no you're yeah, absolutely yeah. right david i'm not dating myself <laughs> <laughs> all right uh so shall we talk a little bit about uh the this python vulnerability yeah so eric what is the oldest item on your work to-do list that was a very sensitive question. Uh, if we expand the really scope, is, if we expand the scope of the question to personal projects, then I'd say you know dates dates back some some years. Yeah, there are novels I started in college that you know I'd really like to get back to. Right. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, these Python developers have got you beat. Apparently, there's been a fairly, fairly serious security exploit sitting around in Python's default tar file module for maybe 15 years. Hmm. Worse like this, using filters to get around some remediations that were done back in the day. An attacker can replace a file outside of the target directory. So if I were extracting to, say, Home John Downloads Weekend, and an attacker extracted a file to dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, password, then that file gets replaced. Again, this was supposedly fixed 15 years ago, but the folks over at Trellix found it when they were looking for something else. And after doing a little bit of analysis, they figured that this vulnerability is present. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's present <laughs> in somewhere around 350,000 open source projects. <laughs> I tell you. So what do you do? Well, you know, luck. Log 4JS, right? First off, don't untar un untrusted tar files. That's to start with, or at least make sure you check them thoroughly before you do. And be aware that there is apparently some incorrect information, including through the Python docs themselves, that tells you supposedly how to remediate this problem. If I find uh, the correct info, I will add it to the comments, but don't wait on that. Second, the Trellix Advanced Research Center has a tool, Creosote, that looks for this vulnerability in your own applications, and we will drop that URL in the comments. Uh, third, 
Trellix is working to send pull requests to fix this, fix this vulnerability in those packages, but they're only going to hit about 12% of the more active ones, which is still, what, about 42,000 packages. So hopefully the tools you use, either directly or indirectly, through other pieces of software that depend on it, will have it fixed. And finally, don't rely on other people to know your software is safe. We've talked about the secure software supply chain before, and this is one of those cases where it can definitely help you. I mean, remember, this is an existing CVE, so it would be picked up depending on how you set the sensitivity of a system. Good point. Mm, yeah. All right, so our, our next security story does not date all the way back to the uh, early aughts, but it is probably worth uh, keeping an eye out for. A recent phishing scheme targets GitHub accounts with fake CircleCI notifications. According to GitHub, this campaign began on September 16th, and the false message claims that users need to log in to accept modified privacy policies in terms of use. And it looks pretty compelling. I'll uh, share the screen here real quick for our live audience and uh, show you a picture. Chrome tab. Uh, so, you know. We we got a logo. Um, looks looks like a reasonably plausible sort of message, right? Um, you know, these kinds of phishing schemes are are getting increasingly sophisticated. Not sort of just immediately obvious at a glance uh, that there's there's a problem here. Uh, and the phishers are also using a variety of reasonably compelling fake domains, including circle-ci.com, emails-circleci.com, circle-cl.com email hyphen circleci.com. According to CircleCI themselves, legitimate addresses will only ever be at circleci.com or a subdomain. No hyphens anywhere in there. Uh, so that's a, a useful thing to remember. Uh, multi-factor authentication with hardware Unless security. the recipient doesn't know what a subdomain looks like in a, yeah, in a, in a yeah. URL, which is, <laughs> I'm sorry, possible. It is possible. Um, so maybe, you know, to prepare for that eventuality, <laughs> you want to consider using hardware security keys. Uh, that, that does shut these off at the pass. Uh, if you're concerned that you've already been hit, CircleCI recommends rotating your credentials for both CircleCI and GitHub and performing a system audit. Uh, you also want to watch out for new users and new SSH keys created within potentially compromised systems. These are strategies that fishers are using to maintain access even once you've changed your passwords out. So, you know, if that SSH SSH key's still there. Hey, they're still popping right in. Uh, so something to watch out for. Uh, meanwhile, more even scarier news from the security front. Um, word has come down that we need to be careful when downloading Zoom uh, because there are apparently six fake download sites with extremely legitimate sounding names, although I notice not subdomains, right? <laughs> Including... Zoom download host, Zoom download space, Zoom download fun, Zoom US.host, Zoom US.tech, and Zoom US.website. Um, I think that we can probably copy this list to the comments uh, so that you have it in front of you. Security firm Cybel reports that at least as late as last week, the URLs were still active and host software that installs malware called Vidar Stealer, which steals banking information, save passwords, IP addresses, browser history, login credentials, and crypto wallets uh, gets uh, installed when you are uh, uh, unlucky enough to be fooled by this. Um, the actual file being downloaded, we can also copy into, into um, uh, comments um, so that you can see what 
the bizarre URL looks like, but <laughs> considering how many legitimate bizarre URLs, you probably okay. I'm not sure how helpful that is unless you automate it somehow looking for this specific file. Um, but this file actually appears legibly only after it's passed through multiple redirects, so even forget that. The zoom.zip file drops two files in the temp directory. One is a legitimate zoom installer, so you won't know you've been duped. And the other is a malicious.net binary called decoder.exe that actually installs the malware. Mm. Lovely. To avoid issues, Cybel recommends following good cybersecurity practices, <laughs> including Always staying away from the internet on the <laughs> air gapping your entire life. <laughs> Avoiding downloading, downloading pirated software from wares and torrent websites. Well, yes, <laughs> the hack tool present on sites such as YouTube torrent sites and, and so on contain such malware. Use, of course, strong passwords um, and enforce multi-factor authentication. Turn on the automatic software update feature on your computer, mobile, and other connected devices. Use a, a well-reputed antivirus and internet security software package on your connected devices, uh, PC, laptop, and mobile. Refrain from opening untrusted links and email attachments without first verifying their authenticity. Um, educate employees, of course, uh, to protect themselves and the company from threats like phishing and untrusted URLs. Um, blocking URLs that could be used to spread malware uh, and, and monitor the beacon on the network level to block data exfiltration by malware or TAs, um, to which I would add, you know, don't engage in long quasi-romantic dialogue with, you know, people who text you at random, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. There's just, you know, some common sense things that people should probably not do. This is a side note, but, and, and maybe I'm dating myself now, but uh, the the word wears, you know, with, with a Z at the end, I feel like I haven't seen that since it's 2006. That's really uh, old. Yeah. <laughs> and it was old then. I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember back when I was removing bad sectors from 8 bit disks on Atari. Oh, wait. <laughs> the FBI, the black helicopters, right? Um, <laughs> I remember we, we used to call it where's back then. <laughs> Mr. Graybeard, thank you. <laughs> Well, these last few stories um, are just a few examples of how the world feels just positively awash in scams and phishing attempts lately. And this is you know much discussed beyond even the the tech realm, right? The fact that like seventy five percent of the calls you get are, are some sort of scam. Um, but I think it's fair to say that if you're in enterprise tech, you've probably felt particularly in the crosshairs. Uh, so authentication provider Okta, which is been in the middle of all this for months now, put some numbers to the feeling in their 2022 State of Security Identity Report. And, and here's one that I found pretty incredible. So these days, a lot of compromised credentials are floating around online, either in big data dumps or on sale from unsavory characters or what have you. So a lot of attackers have access to loads of passwords associated with email addresses or names, and they know that lots of people often reuse passwords. So they'll attempt to use the passwords they have for one service to log into the same person's account on another service. And this sort of break-in attempt is called credential stuffing. So according to Okta, it accounts for fully 34% of login attempts made to services that use Okta for authentication. So slightly over one third of the attempts are credential stuffing attempts. And for some of their clients, there were actually more credential stuffing attempts over a course of two months than legitimate logins using the authentication platform. Uh, so pretty wild kind of, kind of a sign of the times there. 
Lord help us. <laughs> Look, it's more security news. Indeed. Uh, for a slightly more old school security update, Mozilla issued patches for Firefox, Firefox for Android, and Thunderbird to fix a handful of high-risk vulnerabilities, allowing for remote execution by an attacker. The CVEs addressed by these patches include an iframe error that can leak device permissions and memory safety bugs believed to be usable for running arbitrary code. These bugs are fixed in Firefox 105, Firefox ESR 102.3, and Thunderbird 91.13.1. So you want to go ahead and make sure those are updated. Uh, meanwhile, uh, still in the domain of uh, bad actors and uh, and uh, online, uh, but in the more positive, potentially a more positive direction. Last week, we heard about uh, the, the ongoing problem of slavery in Cambodia. Um, but it's not exactly what you think it is. Uh, when you hear slavery, you're probably thinking of people forced to do manual labor or being trafficked. Um, and you maybe wonder what, uh, you know, what that has to do with the technology. Um, it seems that for several years, there's been an issue of people being lured to Cambodia from places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Vietnam with the promise of good jobs, say in a casino resort. And once they arrive, often illegally, like other human trafficking victims, their passports are confiscated and they're forced to work and often threatened with beatings or torture if they refuse or try to escape. Apparently, this is a pretty. Um, but where it gets kind of additionally weird and where the rest of us need to know what's going on so we don't inadvertently perpetuate this activity is that the work these people are forced into doing is often selling cryptocurrency scams. <laughs> Basically, they kidnap people from various countries and have them sell to their own countrymen in native languages. So it seems like a legitimate call from somebody who's not a scammer calling them from, for example, Cambodia. Uh, and that's, of course, bad enough. But where this story tips from sad and scary into downright infuriating is that last week, several of these compounds were raided. And according to reports, instead of rescuing these people who have literally been kept in compounds surrounded by barbed wire, so it's not like nobody knew what was going on there, they were fined for working illegally and pretty much stranded in Cambodia, or at least that's what everything um, uh, we're reading sounds like. So the moral of the story, always check out a foreign job offer before you head off. And second, always check out any kind of investment, uh, uh, you know, or, or romance <laughs> before you invest your money or art. Uh, and in all cases, always remember that, you know, when something sounds too good to be too, it probably is. Well, uh, to end this on a slightly less depressing note, we have a bit of a follow up on a story from a month or two ago. I think an episode you were on, John, uh, that last story described how Japan's new oh, digital course. minister, Taro Kano, was trying to eliminate old laws that require Japanese businesses, public agencies and citizens to use floppy disks for certain tasks, especially if you're submitting some information digitally, say, to a public agency. Since then, we've seen a bit of a media tour from a man named Tom Persky, who founded FloppyDisk.com and describes himself as, quote, the last man standing in the floppy disk business. Uh, FloppyDisk.com doesn't actually manufacture floppy disks, but they bought a giant stockpile before Sony ceased manufacturing, and they were the last manufacturer. Uh, and they also have a process for recycling disks. And I think they also, uh, you know, occasionally people find stockpiles, uh, you know, buried away in some storage container, and they'll buy those up as well. Uh, so they're sort of the the 
primary source going for floppy disk, it seems. And Persky has a new book out called Floppy Disk Fever, The Curious Afterlives of a Flexible Medium. Good title there. And he's been talking to a number of media outlets to promote the book. This has led to some interesting insights on who's still using floppies. Uh, the big one that uh, kind of gets the, the headlines is airlines. Persky says probably half of the air fleet in the world today is more than 20 years old and still uses floppy disks in some of the avionics. Uh, and, you know, that's one of those, I think, where if you have any adjacency to those industries, you, you know, and if you don't, <laughs> uh, it can be and a little surprising. All of a sudden, you're never going to schedule voluntary <laughs> air travel again. Yeah. Um, but also older medical equipment. Uh, the embroidery industry got singled out as a, as a real big one for uh, floppy disks. That's funny. I mean, think the Jacquard loom. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, original use of IBM card type you know, punch cards for, yeah. for programming and now floppy disks. Uh, but according to the register, uh, Persky estimates that the business has about four years left before demand peters out, uh, which, you know, is just, just a sort of uh, a, a wry kind of, kind of sadness to that, but uh, an inevitability. Uh, I kind of enjoy the founder of a business saying, yeah, I think we've got about four years left. <laughs> you don't hear that kind of statement. Very it's often. actually, it sounds very <laughs> mentally healthy. I mean, understanding yeah. that, you know, that this yeah, totally. is what we're going to do and we're going to ride it until it becomes economically infeasible to do it. And then we're going to do something else. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's strangely Less refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for today. Uh, thanks as always to producer Nika and to Lewis and DJ on social and video. Thanks so much for being here with me today, John. Uh, we're available in podcast format on all the major platforms and you can also join us live every wednesday at 1 p.m eastern through the mirantis linkedin page and of course thanks to all of you for listening we'll see you next time